Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 13th of March, 2023, and this is episode 292. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian, clinical psychologist and author Dr Peter Hodgkinson about his recent book, A Complete Orchestra of War, that is a history of the 6th Division on the Western Front during the Great War. This book is published by Helian. Peter spoke to me from his home in England. Peter, welcome to the Dispatches podcast again. May you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? I've been interested in the Great War as long as I can remember. Um, my grandfather, who died uh, when I was five, I still remember him telling me stories about being an ambulance driver on the Somme in 1916. Um, at school, I read just about every book that Reading Library had to offer on the First World War. And then, of course, a working life intervenes and uh, you can't concentrate on it. And I returned to it in the 1990s and then in 2004 started on the first of the Birmingham MA courses. And uh, once I'd done that, did my PhD at Birmingham. We're going to look at um, the sixth division today. Why did you uh, decide to write a divisional history and why focus on the sixth division? Well, I could, of course, be facetious and say there's something to do. Um, but but actually what I'd done previously was I had I had written a, a book on Fourth Army at the Battle of the Cell in October 1918, um, which was, of course, a picture of a whole series of divisions at one point in time without really understanding quite how they'd evolved to get to that point in time. And Sixth Division was, was one of them. And Sixth Division had a very, very difficult time at the Cell. Um, so I decided, especially given that 6th Division only had an 80-page history written by its last divisional commander, that would be the division to focus on. Which needs, lead, leads us neatly on to the next question. Can you tell us about the origins of the 6th Division, where it was raised and the composition of its constituent units? Well, it was first raised, actually, in the Peninsular War um, at the in. August 1914, part of it is in England, part of it is in Ireland. And of course, it is one of the, because of its number, it's one of the six regular divisions that are supposed to make up for, make up the British Expeditionary Force. But because of the risk of home invasion, it's it's kept back until the 9th of September. And, and it's only at that point that it goes to France. It's got three infantry brigades, 16, 17 and 18. 16 Infantry Brigade comprises the 1st Buffs, the 1st Leicesters, the 1st Shropshire Light Infantry. 17th Infantry Brigade is the 1st Royal Fusiliers, 1st North Staff, 2nd Leinster. And 18th is the 1st East Yorkshire, 2nd Sherwood Foresters and 2nd DLI. But of course, like most divisions during the war, it changes uh, over time. And I think there's probably about 24 battalions that 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 circulate through the division during the war. So it serves on the Western Front during the First World War. Could you tell us briefly about its operational history during the uh, conflict? 
it, it's interesting that the sixth division tends to serve in places where the focus of historians has not been. Um, so it, it, it only joins the BEF on about the 13th of September and it's on the Aisne. And it doesn't have a good time uh, on the Aisne. It, it shows its, its lack of development in that two of its battalions go off half-cocked, make an attack that they're really not supposed to make and end up having a lot of casualties. First, yes, West Yorkshire, when the French flee from their right flank, have hundreds and hundreds of men taken prisoners. So it has a rough time on the Aisne. It then goes to Armentieres. Um, and of course, that's overshadowed by the First Battle of Ypres. Uh, in fact, there's been, as far as I can see, there's absolutely no work whatsoever on the Battle of Armentieres as such. Um, it, it suffers relentless attacks whilst the fighting is going on at Ypres. And latterly, it does it in terrible, terrible conditions, probably actually worse than the physical conditions at Ypres. It then serves throughout most of 1915 in the Ypres salient um, after the Second Battle of Ypres has ended. Uh, and it takes part notably there in the, in, in, the very, in, in the very difficult but successful operation to retake the Huge Crater. It suffers 2,129 casualties at Huge Crater. Um, a, uh, uh, obviously an event that's notable for the first use of, uh, of um, flamethrowers in warfare, but the effort to retake it is very little focused on. Um, it then goes to the Somme uh, in, in June 1916, and it has an absolutely terrible time between Guillemont and Ginchy um, in preparation for the Battle of Fleurs Corselet when it attacks a position which it doesn't know exists called the quadrilateral. Um, and we, we, can, we can look at that in a short while if you want to go on and talk about you know, what makes for problems in, in, in warfare. Um, it then, within weeks, takes part very successfully in the Battle of Morval, and then it goes on to fight on the Transloy Ridges, um, again, in absolutely terrible, terrible, terrible conditions. It's then translated north um, to, to the loose sector in late 1916, early 1917, and takes part again in, in an action that no historians really have shown any interest in whatso whatsoever. It's situated between the, the double crassier at loose and Hill 70. And when the Germans pull back during the Battle of Arras, it fights a horrendous um, a horrendous series of actions where it's actually progressing parallel to the British front line down German trenches towards Hill 70. Although it shows actually, in terms of the commanding officers who are fighting that action, a great appreciation of the nature of trench warfare at that point. From there, it goes to Cambrai and it participates very successfully at the start of the Battle of Cambrai. Um, and in a sense, equally as successfully during the German counterattack. In 1918, early 1918, it's, it's, it's down in St. Quentin when the March the 21st blow falls on the Fifth Army there. And again, it shows itself in very, very good light at this point. Um, 
it's the it's the one division that holds out for longest on March the 21st, although in doing so, it's virtually annihilated. It suffers 78% casualties on the 21st, 22nd, um, March 1918. It's rested supposedly in the, um, the Ypres sector, and then in the 100 days, it's translated to, to the Fort, to Fourth Army. And again, has a very, very difficult time at yet another quadrilateral in the Battle of Efe, um, attacking the Hindenburg outpost system at Holnon. Um, and it then fights its way through the Hindenburg support system. And by the time it's got to the cell, it's exhausted and it performs poorly and it doesn't see action again um, during the rest of October or early 1918. So that's its history on the Western nutshell. So looking at that, a number of commentators and great, great war veterans and historians, for, for that matter, have often passed judgment on the reliability and effectiveness of particular divisions during the First World War, notably Robert Graves. What do you, uh, how, what was the reputation, sorry, what was the reputation of the Sixth Division and how did that change throughout the Great War? Um, at one level, that's a difficult question to answer because I think Sixth Division fought in, in places that have been away from the eyes of the historians. And I've seen no contemporary observations about what people thought of Sixth Division. Certainly in Peter Simkin's um, rankings of divisions, it doesn't fare particularly well. And I think that reflects that its performance during the war is, is very uneven. But if we want to, to talk about this later in the interview, that uneven performance doesn't necessarily reflect the quality of the division. It, it reflects the whole progress of the, of the BEF during the war, which is it has its ups and it has its downs. So let's take a look at the officers and the staff of the division. What were their backgrounds and what was the, na the nature of command and officer-men relations within the, in the division? Did it have a particular culture? I don't... I'd be very hard to... Um, to identify that it has a particular culture. Um, it, it has four changes of divisional commander during the war, which is pretty par for the course for, for any division. And you, you could split this evenly into two good and two bad divisional commanders. At the start of the war, it's commanded by Sir John Lindsay Keir. He's only taken over command of the division a month before the war. He's an artillery officer on paper, he should have been a great commander. He was an intellectual soldier, fought during the Boer War. He's won prizes for his for his um, intellectual achievements in writing about the the artillery. As a commander on the ground, he's a dead loss. He's extremely cautious, and he's a man who has absolutely no eye for detail whatsoever, which is a bad thing in a divisional commander. Um, in fact, George V arrives on the Armentier front. And um, and Kia shows him over the next division's trenches rather than his own, just because he doesn't know where his own division actually is. He is he, he's he's bounced up to to six corps on its formation, and doesn't actually perform that badly as six corps commander. Um, but he 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 falls into uh, an argument with Allenby and Hague sides with Allenby and sacks him from command of Sixth Corps. Um, Keir is replaced by Walter Congreve, 
who of course is an exceptional soldier and will prove himself as such during the Great War. Um, he has no command experience, however, prior to taking over command of, of, the, of a brigade prior to the war. He's, he's never been a regimental commander. Um, he's an incredibly brave man, of course, VC during the Boer War. Um, but what you might say about him is that he has been an aide-de-camp during the Boer War. So he's actually looked over the shoulder of, of senior commanders making decisions. Um, he, he plans the operation to retake Huge Crater. And this is almost certainly the first example of a well-planned set-piece attack in, in, in the war. I mean, yes, there have been plenty of British attacks at Ypres, but none of them are seen as set-piece attacks. This is the war's first set-piece attack. He spends days and days and days planning this. It is not his fault that there are 2,200 odd casualties. His abilities are soon realized. And of course, he's bumped up in November 1915 to take command of seven corps. He then is replaced by basically a dead loss, uh, which is Sir Charles Ross. And, and it's, I think you can see here that what's happening is Kia has got appointment because he's the man on the spot commanding an infantry brigade but by um november 1915 the bf is really scraping round for for high quality um divisional commanders it's something it doesn't sort out until 1917-1918 as john bourne would would point out um ross has very very limited experience he's actually a lecturer at the time that the war breaks out um, he's never commanded a, a battalion. He's a GSO one in the UK as the war as the war starts. He is then promoted to the command of 61 Infantry Brigade in France, and then he's bumped up to command Sixth Division. And Ross is is somewhat like Sir John Keir. He's a man with no eye for detail whatsoever. He doesn't even really show uh, in terms of his um, or, of his leadership of the division. He doesn't even show the qualities that you might think would make a good lecturer. Um, and he's actually sacked. Um, he, he, he's sacked um, during 1917. And the wonderful Thomas Marden takes over. Now, Marden is, is, is what I call a technocrat of war. He, he's exactly the sort of divisional commander who has pushed his way up from commanding the first Welsh at the start of the war. He's then gone to the command of 114 Infantry Brigade. And then in mid-1917, he takes over 6th Division. And, and he, is a, he is a man with the most masterly eye of detail. Unfortunately for him, he's paired, as I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute, He's paired with a really, really excellent GSO-1 um, in Tom Grove. Um, and Marden retains control of the division until the end of the war. Um, I, I would say that the, the period of most turmoil between um, uh, the divisional commander and the infantry brigade commanders is at the point of, of turnover between Sir Charles Ross and Marden. The brigade, the, the brigade commanders have got very, very used to having it own their own way and not being told what to do, because Ross doesn't tell anybody what to do. 
Martin, of course, is a control freak, as any technocrat um, would be. And he's very, very keen on keeping control of his infantry brigade commanders. And they don't really like it, although I presume they get they get used to it. There are a number of other um, eminent officers who come up through um, through the unit, through, through the division. Um, I mean, 16th Infantry Brigade is commanded by Ingerville Williams. Um, who, of course, goes on to command 34 Division and is tragically killed on the Somme. There's Congreve, of course. And of the three blokes who are commanding brigades at the, at the outbreak of war, Ingerville, Williams, Congreve, there is one uh, infantry brigade commander who, is, who fails and is sacked, and that's 17th Infantry Brigade Walter Doran. Walter Doran is a, is a very experienced CO, but he fails as an infantry infantry brigade commander. And I think this this really, I mean, there's a view that actually commanding a brigade is not that much different from commanding a battalion, but I actually think it is. I think there is a degree of coordination relationship with senior officers that really requires a step up from uh, infantry brigade command. And Walter Doran doesn't, doesn't make it. Um, I mean, they're, they're quite longevitous in post, however, the, the infantry brigade commanders, 260 days on average, and two of them, two exceptional ones, will go on to command corps, and that's, of course, Congreve and George Harper, who, uh, who, who comes through one of the, one of, commands one of the infantry brigades for a period of time. Um, he replaces Doran, in fact, and he shows his ability very, very early on in March 1917, when 6th Division makes its first tiny planned set-piece attack uh, on, on a salient in, in the lines at, at Lipinet. Um, half of the division's brigadiers um, are promoted. Seven go on to divisional command. So it's... And if, if you're going to look at some exceptional ones here, Cecil Lothian Nicholson, um, who replaces Inky Bill, he goes on to uh, command a, a division, and six of them prove competent. And I think probably the reason that so many of the, um, the, the, the men who pass through sixth division go on to command higher formations is there's a very, very high level of regular office. Um, promoted to, to command. So, I mean, uh, the, the, if you're going to look at the level of, of commanding officers, um, all of them are, see, are, all of them are regulars, apart from four from the Special Reserve, six from the Territorial Force, and three citizen teams. So I think that the, the, they are lucky in that they have men of experience coming through. Um, always the issue an interesting issue is uh, why are officers replaced and how many are replaced as a competence issue. Um, and basically a third of the division's COs are replaced and that's pretty uh, on competence issues and that's pretty par for the course for the BEF as a whole, which I've worked out as 38%. Um, 30% of the COs that pass through the division are promoted. So. At one level, it, it, it's got a, a high level of, of competence, which doesn't, of course, explain why it sometimes fails. 
So let's just turn to um, discipline for a minute. One in- interesting thing that I-, I noticed was that the division actually had 12 men shot at dawn. This appears to be quite a high number when, when I look at other divisions, notably the 56th division, which is my uh, favourite division, and they had three over the course of the war. What was the nature of discipline in the unit, and did the unit have, quote, disciplinary problems? Um, I mean, there's, there's 12, uh, 12 shot at dawns. They... Some of them, I think four of them come in 1915, um, but otherwise they're reasonably well spaced out in the war. Um, eight of them are pre-war soldiers, which I think is interesting. And I think that, the, the, I mean, despite the fact that there are shot at dawns occurring during the war, the main problem point for discipline in the division is early 1940, uh, uh, early in the campaign in 1914, and the first part of 1915. And I think there are probably a number of reasons for this. First, of course, the fighting in 1914 is particularly bloody. Second, of course, there's a very bad winter, 1914 into 1915. But I think the central problem is the fact that the division in August 1914 is basically at half strength, and they're brought up to strength very, very rapidly. Um, within basically a matter of four or five days. But it means that they have got a high number of reservists there. I always like the point that Peter Simpkins makes, which is more men in terms of proportion of those in the field are taken prison prisoner before Christmas 1914 in comparison with the March 21st, 22nd period in 1918. And Peter would say that's entirely down to morale uh, in terms of there being so many reservists. There were, however, differences between between infantry brigades in that um, uh, Smith Dorian described 18th Infantry Brigade as the worst in the army and 1st West Yorkshire as the first, as the worst unit in the worst brigade I- I- in the army. Um, and given that that's Congreve's brigade, it's it's a bit difficult to understand exactly why it should have had its um, had ha- had such a bad reputation. Um, and by the way, about half of the court martials that took pass during this period were for drunken. Um, I'd have probably been one of them, I should think, given the conditions they were fighting in. Um, but if you were to take First West Yorkshire um, uh, as an example, is that when they're on the Ain. The French on their right fall back, and they're actually at one point completely surrounded um, by, by by the attacking Germans. In fact, Walter Congreve lived, leaves his brigade HQ and hares on foot uphill to uh, to support what's going on. But hundreds of them are taken prisoner, and that means that they are that they are rapidly reinforced, but with even more reservists than they had in the first place. And I suspect that that's the real reason for the the, the morale issues. I, I, I can find no real evidence of morale issues later in the war, even when they're decimated. Um, it, 21st, 22nd of March, 1918, there seem to be no particular morale issues beyond, beyond that point. So really, it is the very first six, eight, nine months of the war that the, that the problems are really there. Now let's turn to the the old, old good old chestnuts issue. 
that of the learning process or learning curve. That, for those who may not be familiar with it, is an idea that suggests that Allied forces during the Great War absorbed the lessons from battles and applied them to tactics and operations um, as the war progressed. The idea being that the BEF becomes a more effective uh, force as the war progresses. Now, did the 6th Division demonstrate a learning curve? And if so, what factors enabled this process to occur in the unit? Um, I, I don't suppose that the people like Peter Simkins, who originated the idea of the learning process or learning curve, really meant it quite as simplistically as some people have have, have taken it. And you mentioned there applying applying um, tactics, uh, learning tactics. The, the learning process is far much more than that. It's it's not just about what what they learn from the fighting. It's about technological development. It's about the development of organizational structures. Um, it's about the development of new weapons. So it's a, a wide variety of things contribute to the learning process, and they don't all follow a wonderful curve of improvement because they're occurring at different points in time. And of course, what the Germans are, Germans have their own learning process. So that each, each new innovation that the British Army brings in, the Germans can sw swiftly counter it. So the Germans use gas, the British invent a gas mask very quickly. The British invent tanks, the Germans find out quite quickly that they can actually effectively stop them with a field gun. So each, each, each technological or tactical process is met by a response from, from, from the enemy. And the, the real problem in understanding the the process of fighting in in the Great War, is is the problem of you can do everything absolutely right and still not achieve victory. So what is it that stops you from achieving victory? And probably we don't have to look much further than good old good old Clausewitz to understand this, because Clausewitz invented the concept of friction in battle. And friction, for people who aren't familiar with it, is all the myriad of things that can go wrong on the battlefield that you have absolutely no control over as a um, battalion commander, a brigade commander, or a divisional commander. But also, and this was one of the things that John Bourne impressed on me very, very early in my, my, uh, my learning from him, which is Clausewitz's concept of the independent will of the enemy. So you cannot ever count on what shape the enemy is truly going to be in and what spirit they're going to meet your, your, your attacks. And you, you, you would say absolutely, absolutely, um, absolutely, this is the fate of Sixteen um, in, to meet the independent will of the enemy. It, it's involved in this catastrophic fight um, for the quadrilateral on the Somme. And what, what, what the, the BEF and the corps commander, who's the Earl of Cavan, um, wants to happen is that in front of Guillemont, there's a horseshoe of raised land. And Haig and Cavan want this taken before the start of the Battle of Fleurs or Slet. Poor old 6th Division is stuck in on the night of the 11th of the 12th to go into action on the 13th. 
and it doesn't know where its own troops are, as the, the divisional commander, although it's Charles Ross, and he, he's, he's not the most scintillating of people, he doesn't know where his own units are. No one has the faintest idea where the Germans are. And they certainly don't know that beyond this sort of raised area of land is a little strong point. Um, it's a little hollow in the ground. It's not big. Um, but it's ringed with trenches and it's um, uh, it's it's armed with machine guns and a couple of hundreds of extremely determined Germans who ain't going to give it up. Um, and the attacks of Sixth Division are uncoordinated because the divisional commander doesn't know where they where they are. They're allocated four tanks, um, at least one of which breaks down. There's there's lanes left in the supposed barrage um, through which tanks then don't appear and infantry are shot down mercilessly. And over two, over two days, 6th Division um, sustains 3,500 casualties trying, to, trying to, to take quadrilateral. And the problem here is not 6th Division's. It's not 6th Division's failure. It is that the Earl of Cavan, as the corps commander, is trying to fulfill the wish of GHQ. They don't have the information to pass on to 6th um, to, uh, Division. And in, in core planning of the artillery um, attack, they're firing on the wrong place because they don't know where, 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 where anybody is. And, and there's, a, there's a very, very bitter exchange um, between Charles Sir Charles Ross and the Earl of Cavan in the days after which, in which Ross tenders his resignation um, because of what he sees as cause failings. So in terms of the learning curve here, um, it, 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 it's about one of the other important parts of the learning curve is the, is, is the increase in the ability for intelligence. And, and I don't mean intelligence in terms of stupidity. I mean in terms of knowledge of what where the enemy is and what they're doing. Um, uh, and it, and it's, it is only when they assemble a large range of howitzers and they bash the hell out of the quadrilateral for an entire day that 6th Division is able to take it. And even then, the Germans, after a day of howitzering, still put up quite a significant fight. Um, so, so, so the failing there is not of the learning curve in, in terms of 6th Division. However, if you really want to understand where 6th Division's learning process truly begins, it's when they're in the loose, the loose sector in early 1917. Um, because what they start doing there is they start, and in, in fact, probably during this period, they're the most intensive raiders of the German front lines of all the British divisions. And what they, what they start doing in terms of the trench raiding is understanding how to coordinate properly the division artillery with the infantry attack. They're using gas, um, they're using trench mortars. Um, so they're really, really learning uh, all this on the back of their genuinely welcoming of the new training tactics of, of February, February 1917. So it's really in this sector during a couple of months of, of trench raiding that they learn how to integrate all arms into the attack. And that is truly the high point of, of Sixth Division. And on my penultimate question, what was the sort of level of casualties that the division sustained during the war? 
it sustained 54,000 casualties. Um, and of course, the, the number of casualties of divisions are, are very varied. So 8th Division has 64,000, 31st Division, which of course doesn't have a good reputation, 30,000, 25th Division, 48,000. So in a way, it, its casualties during, uh, during the war are, are not, I mean, they're high, but they're certainly not the highest. And, and it really is, I think, a matter of... Um, of being in the right place at the right time when you've got low casualties and being in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong battle when you've got when you've got um got high casualties so i don't think 54000 tells us much about the and finally peter where can people get the book and learn more about your work um people can get the book from uh, from, from from amazon um i've as, as a person i've got a i've got a fairly sort of uh, wide range of interests um, concerning the, the First World War. And if people go on to go to my website, www.peterhodgkinson.co.uk, they can learn as much about that and probably more than they actually would wish to know. Peter, thank you very much for your time. That's a great pleasure, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>